Welcome to the GM Cancer Podcast. I'm Steve Bland and this is the podcast that takes you inside cancer services in Greater Manchester to give you all the latest news and all the latest goings on. Now, this is the first episode of two that we've put together for World Cancer Day where the theme is Close the Care Gap. In episode two, I'll be speaking to Lisa Galligan-Dawson, who's the Performance Director of GM Cancer, and I'll be finding out a little bit about what she has got coming up in the next 12 months in terms of closing the care gap right here in Greater Manchester. I'll also speak to Kirsty Rollinson-Groves. Now, Kirsty spoke to me in the first episode of this podcast. I've actually interviewed her on two occasions professionally, but never really about her personal life and actually what it means to her to work in cancer services. In this episode, I'm speaking to Professor Rob Bristow, who is the director of the Manchester Cancer Research Centre. And along with his colleagues, he's overseeing the Patterson Redevelopment Project uh, after a fire decimated, as I'm sure you'll all know, the old Patterson building in April 2017. Uh, More than 300 researchers will start to move in at the end of this year. And it'll house cancer research teams driving new clinical trials with the Christie NHS Foundation Trust that will be directly attached to that building. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about about what you do and about your role uh, in Greater Manchester? Yeah, great, Steve. First of all, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and to be talking about some of the things that are coming up in the future that I think are going to be impacting patients from the research side. So, so I'm Rob Bristow. I'm the director of the Manchester Cancer Research Centre. And um, I have both uh, an interest in clinical research as well as actually basic biology, kind of, you know, the science of the science of cancer and the science of, of, of how tumors become aggressive or spread through the body. So um, my role in Manchester, um, after moving from Toronto, from the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, then to the, the Christie and the Manchester Cancer Research Center is really to bring together a number of research groups that have different talents, for example, engineers or chemists or folks that are interested in genetics and bring them into the cancer realm and use kind of the best technologies to drive new ideas forward that are innovative and that will impact in the clinic. So I'm a really strong proponent of cancer team science, developing teams, and those teams should include not only scientists and clinicians, but also patients. And we've got some interesting ways of co-creating that science with patients. Very, very important of their voice. Very important to know how they prioritize research. And and I've been in Manchester now for four years. So I'm a professor at the University of Manchester. I'm chief academic officer at the Christie NHS Trust. And I also drive the Cancer Research UK uh, Centre in Manchester. But at the end of the day, it's all umbrellaed by the Manchester Cancer Research Centre. And we've got fantastic teams fantastic scientists, fantastic opportunities for precision medicine and delivering the latest trials um, at the Christie and the other trusts. But more, most important, we have fantastic patients who want to interact with researchers, and it's a really important piece of what we do. So, I mean, we're obviously mega proud of what happens in Manchester and Greater Manchester. Um, but you're, you know, like you said, you're from Toronto, You've come a long way to Manchester. What was it about Manchester and what's going on at the Christie and all the research that goes on in Manchester? What was it about that that, that drew you to this area? Yeah, so I think, <clears throat> I think there were two, two pieces to that story. So, you know, I came from a very North American comprehensive cancer setting where, where research is um, highly competitive, almost an industry per se. 
trying to form teams sometimes can be difficult because there are lots of individuals and perhaps a lot of egos. And um, when I came to Manchester after being invited to look at the new director's job, I was really impressed with um, not only the quality of research, but the attitude of people to form teams and to actually do things a little bit differently. Because when you form teams, and we have this team science approach, you know, one of the main pieces is that you, know, you bring people together, as I said, from, from different uh, research attitudes and research areas. But you have to define a goal at the end of the day. And goal alignment is really, really important. And if that goal, for example, is to change the, um, you know, the, the survival statistic for triple negative breast cancer, fantastic. And, 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 and the ability to, to just talk to people and see if they have an appetite to, you know, to bring in new ideas and to shake things up and to give them some brain time to do so. I was really impressed with that Manchester piece because I think there's no other place potentially in the world where you have a university that says cancer is one of their research beacons. You've got, you know, a, a large uh, world-renowned cancer center like the Christie that is Europe's largest single-site cancer center. And then you've got the power behind the infrastructure that Cancer Research UK put in for the Manchester Institute, our biomarker center and the center itself, as well as other funding agencies. And, and those partners, you know, form the Manchester Cancer Research Center and have agreed, um, you know, to work together. And, and that's actually a really, really uh, rare environment, you know, to do science in, but also an easier environment to get patients involved. And then the second piece was this experiment, right, in our healthcare system in Manchester of the devolved healthcare. And, and the fact that there's a greater Manchester cancer plan that, that I could work with as someone who's directing research and work with, with the cancer, um, you know, the cancer board and the GMCP. And of course, that that Greater Manchester Cancer um, you know, Board drives, of course, a lot of the programming for the uh, Manchester Cancer Conference that we, we have every year, the Greater Manchester Cancer Conference. But it just said that, you know, if you have new discoveries, then to deploy them is what's really important in order to see some piece of research that's actually on an NHS benchtop and helping patients. And the fact that the Greater Manchester Cancer Plan has aligned care pathways across the different tumor types as well as access to genomics. And the fact that we can make some decisions within our healthcare system with commissioners who determine where the money goes, but also, of course, um, the city council. To me, that was a very exciting, again, um, environment to work in where I could see our science in Manchester actually being implemented perhaps more quickly and, and facing the NHS. And, and again, in North America, it would be extremely rare to actually have the, um, the population-based healthcare system actually interacting so closely with the research at a university. So, so those are just two exemplars of why I think Manchester is quite unique, uh, why I've never regretted coming to Manchester um, personally or professionally, and, and why I think we're developing some great teams here that will definitely have international impact. Um, before we ask you to like look forward a little bit, you know, this is for World Cancer Day, we're going to look forward uh, and look at the areas that are exciting you for the year ahead but before we do that I should just you know seeing as we've got you on I should just you touch on the on the the pandemic that we're I don't know if we can say we're coming out of it but hopefully we're you know we're coming towards the end of of of, of lockdowns and restrictions and that kind of thing but how how has the last a couple of years affected particularly research and particularly research in Manchester? 
Yeah, well, it, it absolutely has affected our research programming. Of course, when COVID um, first started, there was great fears about would COVID infections increase side effects for radiotherapy or chemotherapy or immunotherapy, and therefore great lengths, of course, to keep COVID out of cancer hospitals, um, but also a worry that perhaps, you know, um, we, we shouldn't give those patients those types of, of, of treatments if they had a COVID-19 infection. So, so the, the, the downside was that, and as everyone is aware, that there were waiting lists, um, you know, not only for screening and early detection, but also for treatment as we kind of worked out what are um, those elements, you know, within patients who are coming through the door that we have to worry about. And we found out actually, again, through kind of big data approaches and, um, you know, across populations that, in fact, we could go ahead and give radiotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy to many patients, except, except some patients that might have some other diseases such as high blood pressure, et cetera. And we might come back to that, Steve, later on in the podcast. I think from a from a basic and discovery science standpoint, all the labs were closed. They were shuttered, you know, and 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 we weren't allowed to go into the laboratories um, because there hadn't been initially a, a way forward to say, how do we do science now where everyone's got a mask on and we have to socially, um, you know, we have to we have to socially distance. And at the same time, lots of resources at universities, of course, were placed to to handling the COVID-19 epidemic, thinking about vaccine programs, thinking about testing programs, et cetera. So, so in summary, waiting lists increased for patients. Um, uh, we had to know what was safe in terms of delivering care. Clinical trials pretty much stopped, Steve. Um, so, so those clinical trials that were offering next generation treatments or providing us with samples to understand who's resistant or who's sensitive, all those trials stopped. And we really only started to reboot all of that to, to a level um, uh, that, that was starting to increase research again from around May 2021, to be honest. And then we were almost back at the Christie to full clinical trials, you know, right on. With Omicron, of course, you know, again, we had to be very, very cautious as that wave hit. But slowly we're starting to see that perhaps the Omicron wave will not be affecting, um, you know, our research programming and, and then putting clinical trials back online if they were stopped just for a short period of time as we understood the impact of Omicron versus, you know, versus the previous COVID waves. So, so the, the downside, of course, is that research stopped completely and then went ahead about 50% capacity. In a, in, a, in a way, there was an upside to all of this, which was people had to, time to think and, and, and how was the most efficient way to get research done because you only had 50% in your lab but also data. Data became very important. You know, understanding the interactions between COVID-19 and cancer, whether it was treatment, whether it was outcome, side effects, that become a, became a big, big story. And, and I think it's something that is here to stay about using that data to infer um, you know, a more personalized medicine approach because we're starting to understand how cancer interacts with other diseases, such as a COVID-19 infection. Okay. Let's let's look ahead now. Um, World Cancer Day is a really good opportunity to look at what you know what's coming up. The tagline for this year: "Close the care gap." And you were telling me just before we uh, hit the record button that there's there's a lot of um, a lot of work going on in terms of inclusion and closing that gap at, you know, all across the world, not just in Manchester. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And you know, and I'll be giving a, a lecture from the MCRC standpoint about you know internationalization uh, as a means to inclusion so so it's really a concept that you know we should be giving precision medicine to all 
And, um, and when we look from a research standpoint about what's being collected and what's being done, for example, in the world of genetics, you know, we, had, we have great pride probably four or five years ago when there were large international uh, tumor sequencing consortia, either in the U.S. or, or an international, international cancer genome consortium. I was part of that. I, I was involved in the prostate cancer genome consortium, and, and that meant that we were doing sequencing the entire genomes of, of 750 men's cancers, as well as their germline, their bloodline, to understand what were the genes that drove cancer um, in localized uh, low-risk or high-risk prostate cancer. When we looked at all of the programs across different tumors in that, in, you know, within the ICGC or that consortia, there was a glaring miss, and that is there were no projects that came from Africa. All of the projects were from other continents. Part of that was due to because you needed large funds to, to fund this type of work, but it meant that a quarter of the world's population's genomes were not part of these international consortia. So when we started to think about how do we use that genetic information to potentially be more precise about the risk for cancer or how to treat cancer, it meant that it was very much focused on European you know, ancestries and not other ancestries. So the inclusion piece is to recognize as researchers that we've missed a trick and we need to go back now and absolutely include other countries and other ethnicities as part of that, those genetic studies and all research studies. And I think that's the exciting piece for inclusion now because um, you have to recognize what, what went wrong. And I don't think initially anything went wrong because you know, the, the reality was we had to try and get funding and each country had a different model. But, but now we, need, we know that, for example, in prostate cancer, um, uh, cancers that may come from China have a completely different pathway um, at which they actually um, uh, evolve compared to cancers in, in, that would come from a you know, Eurocentric background. And similarly with African um, cancers, for cancers from Kenya or South Africa, have much more aggressive uh, genetics and much more aggressive cancers and again have a very different type of genetic makeup. And, and I think the way that this impacts on inclusion is, is, a, is a, there's a couple of things. The first is we're, we're trying to develop, you know, genetic tests to talk about risks of cancer and place that potentially into the healthcare system, even at the level of a general practitioner. So you could do a cheek swab, look at genetics, and then determine your risk of cancer or take a blood sample, for example, determine risk of cancer. But if all of those tests are trained on solely European populations and not trained on patients from African backgrounds or South or East Asian backgrounds or in, in America, you know, Latin backgrounds, then actually they're not going to be fit for purpose. And, and again, we, we have started to find that out now because those genetic tests that we derive, they're not fit for purpose across those different ethnicity groups. So I think the exciting piece is that there's a real now push to involve lower and middle income countries that have different ethnicities as part of research programming um, to drive, for example, in Manchester, a project with Kenya, not only looking at the healthcare system, but actually looking at the genetics of esophageal as well as uh, prostate cancer along with them. So co-designing and co-creating these studies um, by Kenyans for Kenyans. And, and that's a really important piece around inclusion that the population itself, you know, drives the research questions and we help rather than a more paternalistic approach from Manchester towards these countries. And I think that's going to change then probably within the next five to 10 years when someone comes in to a clinic that has a different background, we may be giving them different treatments. 
and we wouldn't be necessarily doing that right now. So that inclusion piece is really important for screening and, and further engagement within Greater Manchester, but it's a piece that we're also applying you know, across the world with some of our global research programs. And that internationalization is now not just trying to set up Manchester research across the world, it's actually to work with our partners to understand how better we can do inclusive research in Manchester by working with populations in different countries that make up the diaspora of our patients. So a very exciting time for research, very inclusive time for research, and a, and a real learning piece for us as we go forward in, in cancer research in Manchester. And I guess it's also like an international extension of of just the idea that all cancers are different, isn't it? It's yeah, this sort exactly. of personalized approach to treatment. It's sort of an international expansion of of that to understand, you know, what makes up individual cancers and the differences between tumor types and all that kind of thing. 100%. And it gets us to, you know, what I, what I, you know, the Holy Grail here is, is ultimate precision, you know, and, uh, and the other area that we might want to talk a little bit about that is, you know, every patient, you know, patient that has cancer, of course, as we grow older, you have other diseases and taking other, me- other medicines. And how does that impact? on? Well, let's get stuck into that. Cause yeah, that's the other thing, isn't it? That is the big thing. Um, Big thing coming up, hopefully, in the next 12 months, a lot of research in that area. Indeed, yeah. So, Steve, so so I hinted that, of course, we learned a lot of um, lessons from COVID-19 and infections and how that altered, you know, um, cancer side effects. But, but I, I think that, you know, one of the things that has really come out over the last few years is that the, the biology of the cancer itself may be may change depending on what other the diseases the patient has and what other drugs the patients are taking in order to to actually kind of fine tune that that piece um we do have to then take large kind of population studies of patients who are coming through the clinic who are on different drugs for for different um for different diseases and look for those relationships but i'll give you just a few stories that have come out and are still to be implemented i think in the daily you know, healthcare settings, but but there were three areas. One, there was a, a series of work that suggested that for those patients that had what's called type two uh, diabetes or late onset diabetes, and were on um, oral medications that reduced blood sugars, such as the drug metformin, that it seemed that that was changing the metabolism of uh, tumors based on kind of preclinical work, experimental models. And when you did clin- when you looked at the clinical data and said if patients were on metformin, did they do better or worse, for example, for radiotherapy, if we were sensitizing those tumors with metformin to radiation, there was evidence that patients did much better if they're on metformin or not. And, and so, so that suggests that we need to really look at, um, for example, patients that have diabetes, how does that affect the tumors that are growing in those patients, and how might metformin, again, in selected patients be utilized efficiently, effectively, to change things around. And there are two other areas that are really, you know, um, I think are really talk about this, this type of information being um, starting in the kind of the research domain and then tested out in the clinical domain. And, and one story turned out not to be true, and the other story is still pending. But the story that turned out not to be true, there was huge excitement during COVID-19 with a study that came out of Switzerland suggesting that the receptor for the COVID-19 um, virus was similar to uh, the signaling pathway for hormone ther- used for hormone therapy for men with prostate cancer. And, and based on a small study of around 400 men, suggested that men who were on hormone therapy for prostate cancer 
were relatively protected from COVID-19. So, so that was a huge, um, a huge interesting study for many, many biologic reasons, but also many population and potential healthcare reasons. And, and most recently then, there have been two large studies now with 10 times the number of patients. And, and it turns out that it's, it's not true. It turns out that, that, we, that that association isn't there. And the way that that started was that there was a basic discovery around the receptor for COVID and that cancer scientists understood that it might be a play a role in, um, you know, in, the, in prostate cancer. And then a small study was done in patients and it looked like positive signal. But this just speaks again to <clears throat> requiring large data sets to be able to look at specifically at those at those interactions in patients who did or did not have COVID, which again were put in place during the COVID uh, nineteen early months, and and we could we could disprove that. And and then in November of last year, there was a study in Cancer Cell that said that patients who were uh, that that one of the receptors, the histamine receptor that we use antihistamines again for allergies was actually involved in determining the sensitivity to immunotherapy and suggesting that if you take antihistamines, you might have a better, um, um, a better outcome with drugs that are called uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors or, or immunotherapy. Now, that's preclinical data. Um, we still have to see again if in the real world data, patients taking immunotherapy who have allergies and are on these medications that shows that relationship. But if that were true, um, it would give a new way to improve immunotherapy with a very um, cheap drug, frankly, an antihistamine going forward within that precision medicine piece. And again, it's because understanding the other diseases the patients have and the drugs that they're taking and the potential impact on, on not only outcome, but also patient side effects. It's <clears throat> absolutely incredible, isn't it? And I think I've, I've, I've talked to quite a few people and, and it's not uncommon, is it, for a a drug to pop up from something else, like a, a treatment uh, for a completely different disease. This has happened before, hasn't it? There's, there are treatments that we we now accept as being fairly common that have, have popped up from research into a completely different disease. Well, 100%. And we kind of call that repurposing drugs, um, you know, where, where, where we do large screens, you know, for drugs that might be um, important for um, killing cancer cells, you know, at least in the in the in the model setting in, in research labs and we find out that for example there might be drugs that that are heart drugs that are actually useful for certain types of of tumor cells that again have different metabolism that you know utilizes calcium channels um, and those calcium channels are also involved in heart problems and that's where again those two worlds meet and and then you have to go ahead of course and, and test that out in clinical trials that those work but but that's those repurposing those drugs of course you know, are exciting in one way because, um, you know, many of those drugs are off patent. That means it might be a, a, more, a less expensive way to give yeah. precision medicine. Um, the other thing that we talked about, again, uh, referring to just before we hit the record button was, was and, and forgive me, the, the, you all explain this way better than I, uh, than I can. Um, you talked about a drone and the, and the comparison yeah. between a drone yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and some work that's going on as well. Yeah, no, fair enough. So, so I think there, there's there's some really interesting technologies in research that that have made breakthroughs over the last two years or so that I think are going to become mainstay in the next five years. And and these are what are called spatial biology technologies. And so they, you know, let, let's let's take the example again of of a genetic test that, or a biomarker that might say that you are sensitive to a specific new drug and that new drug targets a that genetic pathway. And therefore, if you marry the genetic test 
with the, the drug, that's precision medicine. Um, well, that's usually based on DNA. And, you know, in cells, you have DNA, you have RNA, you have protein, and you also have uh, the, the effects of all of those on, on what we call cell metabolism or the, 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 you know, the machinery of the cell, how it works. We, we usually focused on DNA or RNA, and, and we don't usually put things together because it gets kind of complex for some of these assays. But we also didn't have a way um, to look at, um, you know, through a tumor with these technologies. We had to grind up, you know, big amounts of tumor in order to get enough DNA to run an assay or RNA. And so we call that kind of bulk sequencing. So, so bulk, bulk tissue all ground up for DNA sequencing or RNA sequencing. Well... Now we have what are called spatial technologies, where actually we can glean the cell-to-cell differences in RNA or protein or metabolism by new technologies. For example, that you take a, a histologic section or a piece of tumor that a pathologist would look like under the microscope, and actually each of the cells can give information out of that, out of that specimen around a number of different elements that might speak to the biology. So it's almost like I was describing a drone now that's going to cross the section to pick up all of these important signals. And it's, and we're putting it all together and, and surprise, surprise, something called multi-omics as opposed to just genomics. And it's a new field in which we also have to describe how to bring all of that complex biology together and distill it down to something that makes a difference to a patient. But I guess in simple terms, by using this drone technology to look at the spatial interactions of where cells are and what their signals are relative to each other, the idea is that there might be um, a specific signal that comes from protein or from the metabolism of the cancer that actually gives us better information than the DNA we're currently using in terms of a test. And it's developing the next set of biomarkers based on all of the biology of the tumor rather than just looking at one specific aspect. And I think that that, again, will lead in addition to inclusion, as well as those, the, 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 the piece around other diseases and drugs to further ultimate precision medicine for our patients in the next five or 10 years, as we gather as to um, what that, that extra data means in terms of, of really fine tuning what's the best drug or best radiotherapy, proton therapy, photon therapy, for our patients. So a very exciting time and a technology breakthrough to embrace complexity uh, for our research questions because we now can measure complexity. Uh, so exciting, Rob. And I guess I've said before when we talked about the gallery trial, I think that it's it's easy for a patient, you know, when you hear maybe something like, you know, a chemotherapy drug might take 10 or 12 years or 15 years to develop and to test. It's easy to think that maybe these things aren't moving quickly, but actually you know, it's it's moving so quickly, isn't it? And there's so much coming on. And this must be, you know, what what gets you out of bed in the morning. This is exciting stuff, isn't it? This is like genuinely, you know, stuff that in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we could be in a completely different position with so many different cancers. Yeah, and, and, and absolutely. And again, the excitement of also working within teams to get there faster, you know, to add momentum to our research programming. And importantly, a sense of duty you know, as researchers to make sure that our research is impacting on all of the population rather than just a few. And, and, and I think, you know, part of the whole digital transformation of, of using data and, and we at the Christie, for example, many of our patients are putting their side effect profiles now on their, on their social, on their social, you know, smartphone devices and, and integrating that data directly into the Christie system. 
these sorts of interactions, I think, are going to really allow us to engage patients better in, in our research programming and also engage populations better in our screening. So that, again, that mantra of precision medicine for all and precision screening for all will be something that Manchester will be internationally leading in in due course. Perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much, Rob. My pleasure. And it's great to talk to you today about fantastic and exciting things happening in Manchester and worldwide. Thank you so much to Rob and thank you to you for listening to this episode of the GM Cancer Podcast. This one is just one of two that we've done for World Cancer Day. So if you haven't checked out the second one yet, please go and do that. In the meantime, if you want to let us know about any topics you think we should be covering or you've got any thoughts on the podcast, you can find GM Cancer on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram now. That's at Greater Manchester Cancer.